This week's TribCast is sponsored by the Central Texas Regional Mobility Authority. The Central Texas Regional Mobility Authority implements innovative and sustainable transportation solutions to enhance quality of life and economic vitality in Central Texas. Learn more at mobilityauthority.com. And Circle. Circle is the app that brings state leadership and influencer data to the same secure platform. Download it today at mycirql.com. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune TribCast for December 9th, 2020. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor for News and Politics. I'm joined by politics and justice reporter Emma Platoff. Hi there. Politics reporter Cassie Pollock. Hello. And energy and economy reporter Mitchell Furman. Hey there. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, This week, we're going to start off talking election, as we've talked about for many of the most recent TribCasts. This week, the state of Georgia certified its election results for the third time after two recounts, once again affirming President-elect Joe Biden's victory in the traditionally Republican state. The U.S. Supreme Court denied an attempt by U.S. Rep. Mike Kelly and other Republicans to overturn Pennsylvania's results, which have already been certified. And a federal judge tossed a lawsuit seeking to reverse the results in Michigan, saying it was based on, quote, nothing but speculation and conjecture. But on Tuesday, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton joined the list of Republicans refusing to accept Biden's victory. He filed a lawsuit on behalf of the state of Texas contesting the results in Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania. The suit was quickly derided by election law experts with ties to both parties. Um, one of my personal favorites, UT law professor Steve Vladek, who called it, quote, the new leader in the craziest lawsuit filed to be purportedly challenged, filed to purportedly challenge the election category. Emma, you were uh, our uh, writer on this. Can you tell us what this lawsuit says and what it's trying to do here? Yeah, so this is kind of a last-ditch effort. Um, We're obviously coming up on the very end of President Trump's term. We're coming up on the, you know, the date when all the states will have certified their election results and and sent their electors to the Electoral College. Um, And this is an effort by Ken Paxton, and we've seen a little bit of support from other Republican attorneys general, though though so far no one formally on the case with him, to say that... um, the election changes made during the pandemic during the in these four battleground states were unlawful, according to him, and, and uh, to a degree that cast into question the entirety of the election results. So he is asking the Supreme Court basically to block these four states from participating in the Electoral College until um, what he calls these irregularities have been sorted out. Um, important to reiterate here. Everyone from state election officials um, in these contested states to U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr has said there is no evidence of widespread election fraud that has the potential to change the election. Um, these issues have been litigated and litigated, and, and the Trump campaign has lost at basically every turn. Um, but Paxton is is saying, you know, there's more to see here. So the, the trick to this case, I think the reason we're seeing it come so late and the reason it's um, sort of an important Hail Mary potentially for the Trump campaign is that 
as a state attorney general, Paxton um, has a special ability to file a case directly with the U.S. Supreme Court. Normally, you know, if I wanted to file a case, um, I would have to start in the trial court, then you lose, then you go to the appeals court, then maybe you can try to get a case filed at the U.S. Supreme Court. But when you represent a sovereign state, you can go straight to the U.S. Supreme Court, um, and if they buy your argument that this is something important, then they'll hear it immediately. And so we've heard President Trump talk about, you know, with the appointment of Justice Amy Coney Barrett, um, you know, he, he clearly thinks that the Supreme Court is going to be a good venue for him. And so this is basically a ticket to get there immediately, not have to go through all these lower courts that continue to reject his lawsuits. So the Electoral College meets uh, December 14th, which I'm looking at my calendar. That's Monday. That's not a lot of days between then and now. Uh, what what happens between what happens with this case? What's the next step? When will we know whether this is something the Supreme Court's willing to consider? So the Supreme Court did something small on this yesterday, which is that they asked the defendant states, so that's the battleground states of Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, to respond to Texas's claims. Um, some people are reading a lot into that. You know, does that signal that they're more or less likely to take this case seriously? Um, my sense from experts is that it really doesn't mean anything. Um, they're just, you know, when you have an issue of this importance, it's pretty standard. You want to hear from all sides. So those responses from the battleground states are due on Thursday afternoon. And I think we can expect the court to move pretty quickly after that. Um, in the Pennsylvania case you mentioned, where the high court threw out a challenge from Pennsylvania Republicans, they did something very similar. They asked for a response. Um, they got the response. And I think it was maybe as soon as the next day or a couple days later that they threw out the case. So obviously, with the deadline approaching, I think we can expect this to move pretty quickly. What are what are what are our chances here? I mean, it's do you agree with kind of the assessment that this is, you know, unlikely to go anywhere? There are about a million reasons why this is a long shot lawsuit. A lot of them are really boring and procedural, like these questions of standing. You know, normally when states go directly to the Supreme Court to sue other states, it's over. Um, it's a neighbor state and it's over something like water rights. Um, one, one lawyer I talked to today told me, you know, if Texas can over this, then it seems like any state can sue any other state over anything at the U.S. Supreme Court, which is certainly not a result that the justices want. Um, there's also the point that many of these um, issues have been litigated in other courts. And as we know, the election results in these battleground states have been certified. Um, judges are overwhelmingly not persuaded by the Trump campaign's arguments. And also that the remedy Texas is asking for, which is basically to block four important decisive states from participating in the Electoral College, is pretty extraordinary. And it's, it's a, I think it's a hard bet to ask a you know, small-c conservative court to basically uh, get involved with how states run their elections, right? To say, we actually think that you know, the U.S. Supreme Court should decide what the rules should be in Pennsylvania or Michigan. Um, so I, I think the... The lawsuit faces a lot of challenges, to, to put it uh, succinctly. It's been pointed out by some folks, uh, including yourself, that um, I believe you said this, noted this on Twitter, that the state solicitor general did not sign on to the lawsuit, that it's it's basically Paxton's name on this. Um, how unusual of that is that, and do you think there's anything to be read into that? It's very unusual, um, and it's hard to know exactly what to read into it. So for the first time in any case I have ever seen covering this agency for almost four years, uh, Paxton is listed as an attorney on the case. 
Um, typically any attorney general, but especially this attorney general, you, you would not expect them to be sort of hands-on in the weeds of any case that they're litigating, even the really big cases. Um, it's also notable for who's not on the filing. Like you said, Texas Solicitor General Kyle Hawkins, um, he was picked for this job because he is the best guy they have, right, to do these Supreme Court arguments. He argued before the high court just about a month ago. He clerked at the Supreme Court. If you want a case at the Supreme Court and you're in the Texas Attorney General's office, he's your guy. So it is unusual that he's not on the case. I have asked why he's not um, and have not received an answer. The person who is representing the state on the case, um, other than Paxton and, and his most senior deputy, is a is a D.C. lawyer named Lawrence Joseph, who um, is not super well-known in Texas circles, except that he has represented um, some, some major Texas Republicans on sort of politically hot-button... Uh, well, you know, uh, we, we also saw earlier this week before the Supreme Court kind of uh, poured cold water on the Pennsylvania challenge, we saw uh, Ted Cruz offering to argue that case before the court, you know, Cruz being a former solicitor general. So maybe they'll maybe they'll enlist them if they get that far. Um, I want to read two uh, subject lines to emailed press releases that landed in my inbox uh, after this came out. Uh, the first one from the state Democratic Party, hoping for a presidential pardon, federally indicted Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton entertains Trump's false election claims with a new lawsuit. First of all, fact check, I don't think that Paxton is federally indicted right now, right, Emma? Yeah. Is that correct? No, the, there's only one indictment, it's under state law, but yeah. Right. And then also Progress Texas, another Democratic group uh, statement, Maybe Ken Paxton is looking for a presidential pardon in exchange for that bogus lawsuit. Um, this has been kind of a very uh, common through line for people who are opposed to this suit. Um, we all know we've discussed on this lawsuit or on this uh, tripcast before the um, the legal trouble that Ken Paxton may or not find himself in. Um, what what do we think of this uh, this pardon question that's being raised right now? Well, you can see why it's kind of irresistible speculation for progressive groups in the state. Um, here's Ken Paxton, you know, this this figure with a lot of legal and criminal troubles of his own, taking a, a step that many view as kind of a long shot and certainly Democrats view as an affront to democracy. So it's kind of irresistible, I think, for, for many people to make that leap. Um, it is just speculation at this time, right? We know that Paxton is a longtime ally of Trump. We know that they often line up in court battles. Um, and, and I think it's 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 not at all difficult to imagine Paxton taking this exact same step to, you know, do do all he can for Trump's reelection efforts, despite, you know, under totally different circumstances, right? Even if there were not this FBI investigation hanging over his head, which we know that there is. So, um, speculation, certainly there. But I, I think it also does raise an important point, which is that um, politically, Paxton is is a guy you might want to be avoiding right now. Um, he is facing these serious allegations from eight of his most senior deputies um, who said that there have been, you know, there have been bribery allegations. He's been found to do these favors for a political donor, Nate Paul. And I think a lot of people might look at Paxton right now and say, huh, uh, maybe he's not the attorney general with whom I want to, you know, invest my reelection hopes, right? Maybe I'm going to turn to Florida or Louisiana this time. Um, so I think there is certainly a lot to be chewed on there. And, and Paxson and Trump certainly have a relationship. That being said, you know, 
we're not necessarily seeing Republicans running from this lawsuit, right? We we heard statements from uh, or a state uh, a comment from Governor Greg Abbott yesterday. You know, uh, I believe kind of expressing support for the idea, and then there's maybe a possibility of other states kind of expressing interest in, in joining in on this suit. There are at least four state attorneys general in Republican states. Um, I'm going to miss one, but it's Missouri, Louisiana, Alabama, and Arkansas. Um, and they're all kind of various degrees of this is a great idea or we're all in. Um, so far, we haven't seen anyone formally join the Texas suit, It's which is a little bit unusual. I mean, obviously, we're operating under sort of a condensed timeline here with the Electoral College deadlines approaching. But normally on this uh, on a big multi-state suit, there's an opportunity among state attorneys general who work together all the time, um, you know, both across political lines and on a partisan basis. Um, so it, it was a little surprising to me that, you know, if these folks did want to jump into this lawsuit, that they didn't do it before it was filed. But it's it's hard to really know what's going on behind the scenes there. But but certainly there has been Republican support for this, um, both in the state and outside of it. Yeah, and, you know, we continue to see the um, Republican uh, willingness, interest in kind of questioning the election results. Um, we've, uh, we already mentioned Cruz and kind of his his call for the courts to intervene, the Supreme Court to get involved. Uh, John Cornyn actually on Twitter today uh, called Joe Biden the president-elect, which I thought was notable. But then he kind of noted afterwards that he was just basically had copied and pasted from an article he was holding a link he was tweeting <laughs> to, which is, you know, a very uh, John Cornyn thing to do. We've seen that happen a lot of times where he just uh, directly quotes something without quotation marks and people read something into it that's not there. So, but at the very least, Cornyn has been kind of the most, um, you know, not coming necessarily coming out and saying Biden won the election, but basically kind of acknowledging that Biden will be president in January, which I guess is kind of the same thing. But anyways, let's um, let's hear a little bit from our sponsors before we move on to the next topic. Today's TribCast was brought to you by Lowy Law Firm. The Lowy Law Firm is an Austin personal injury firm dedicated to helping injured Texans and committed to giving back to the community. More at LoweyLawFirm.com. And Texas Bankers Association. During the COVID-19 pandemic, Texas community banks have led the way in providing PPP loans to help small businesses survive. More at texasbankers.com. Okay, meanwhile, at home in Texas, the pandemic still rages, and we are, I believe, from the latest count, 34 days from the legislative session. That sound right to you, Cassie? I know you're counting it down. Oh, yeah, that is, that is spot on, Watkins. Thank you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the big questions continues to be, how will this be done safely? How can you do a legislative session during the pandemic? Uh, yesterday, we saw from the Tribune's Aaliyah Swaby um, a story kind of breaking the news that when the Texas State Board of Education met in November, uh, three members of that board tested positive for the virus uh, shortly after. Um, the legislature, I think, tends to be an even more kind of up close and personal event, you know, you've got people on the house floor, uh, sharing candy, slapping each other on the back, shouting, cheering, you know, packed in on desks and things like that. Um, Cassie, we're starting to, we're still waiting to kind of hear what the session will look like officially, you know, how all these things will work in the Capitol. But we've heard in the recent days, some hints from leaders in both the house and the Senate 
Can you tell us a little bit about kind of what signals we're getting so far? Yeah. Um, so last week we reported, you know, Charlie Guerin, House Admin Chair, uh, telling a group of lobbyists, you know, uh, basically getting everyone caught up on where the latest discussions are at, um, you know, on the House side. Um, presumptive Speaker Dave Phelan has put together a couple work groups looking at House rules, looking at recommendations that could be made, uh, you know, before House members come back in January. Um, you know, do we need to have virtual committee hearings? Do we need to require temperature checks or rapid tests before people can enter the Capitol? Should the number of limit, uh, should there be, you know, a, a limit placed on the number of people allowed inside the building? Um, you know, just across the hall and the Senate, um, the process has been a little bit different. Um, I, you know, believe that there has been um, a group, a work group of some sorts appointed to, to look at various recommendations. But then the latest there was, um, last week on Friday when Dan Patrick, Lieutenant Governor, spoke with a group of senators and basically told them, hey, look, you know, what we're looking at is, is doing a 60-day trial period where we're not allowing committees to really meet other than, uh, you know, two days during the week. Um, you know, lobby, lobby days aren't going to happen. Press will be sitting up in the gallery. Um, I guess, you know, the, the big two takeaways from both conversations happening in the House and the Senate is that uh, there hasn't really been any sort of final decision made on what exactly capital, uh, the capital is going to look like during session. Um, just about an hour ago, Garen was talking to a group, a virtual uh, a group virtually, and he was asked, you know, hey, have there been any final decisions made? And uh, let me read this quote. Quote, no, they have not. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. The House and Senate are kind of wondering in different directions. So um, I guess that's where we're at is is the House and Senate are, are busy trying to figure out what they can, uh, you know, come together on and what differences are going to have to uh, just remain differences between the two chambers during session. So help me help me understand this, Cassie, who's led into the Capitol that's determined by the State Preservation Board. Is that kind of the... Yeah, yes. I mean, State Preservation Board oversees the Capitol itself and then Capitol grounds. So you're talking about a few different buildings that are located just in that general vicinity. The chair of the State Preservation Board is Greg Abbott. Uh, the speaker and, and lieutenant governor also play roles. Um, so, you know, I think there are conversations happening about, okay, what needs to happen across the board building wise. So we're probably talking about limits placed on the number of people allowed into the building, what those screening protocols look like for people entering the building. Um, and then, you know, chamber specific conversations happening about, uh, you know, and I guess to, 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 to be fair, you know, the house has 150 desks, as you were alluding to, that are quite tightly um, crammed together. And, you know, the Senate is a little bit more spaced out with its 31 desks. So just a little bit of a different dynamic there. Um, and, you know, could, could maybe, um, you know, make the argument that, that different rules belong in the different chambers. Is it possible that this, you know, there's, there's, Questions that are interesting to us, and then I think they're also, you know, about what our life is going to be like in the next six months and, and covering the session and, and, and interesting to the lawmakers. You know, there's also a question of public access, you know, how will this hamper the ability of, you know, people who maybe don't have uh, 
lawmakers' uh, cell phones or, or things like that to be able to kind of try to influence, you know, take meetings. You talk about lobby days. That's that's a lot of times, you know, the alumni of universities or, or disability rights advocates and things like that going and kind of trying to flood the capital, maybe especially from groups that don't have the money to kind of, you know, get that access through donations and fundraisers and things like that. Um, but then, you know, the other thing that I've been wondering about is just how does this affect the legislature's ability to do the things that they usually do? Um, I mean, we've talked quite a bit about how many kind of big challenges there are this session between a, a really difficult budget season redistricting, you know, these policing reforms and some of the things that are coming up um, with that. I mean, is there is does it do you get the sense that a possible option out there is a, you know, more limited range of things the lawmakers are going to do or a, a, a smaller number of legislation that could be making its way through the Capitol this time around? Uh, yes and no. I mean, it's hard to see a world in which at the end of the 140 days, assuming that the legislature decides to use up, you know, that entire 140 day period, uh, you know, that we have much more time, much time for anything else, you know, once we get through redistricting and the budget, um, there's a question about whether redistricting will even be possible during a regular session, given potential census delays. Um, you know, we were actually talking about this uh, on a on a panel for the legislative symposium yesterday. I mean, it just it's going to come down to what the big three want to have happen as their priorities. And, and that's kind of, you know, leading me to my next point is, we really don't have a good idea of what their priorities look like quite yet. I mean, aside from like, as you mentioned, the policing reforms that, that Abbott has, um, you know, spoken about and, you know, Dan Patrick saying that the Senate will be supportive of such measures. We really don't have a good picture of, of really what uh, the big three are going to be pushing or what their quote unquote emergency items are going to be heading into session. So uh, um, I don't know, I guess we'll just have to, to wait and see. I think the redistricting timeline plays a big part of this. Uh, you know, how fast can uh, the budget come together um, and, you know, whatever sorts of responses that the legislature wants to have to, to COVID on a, you know, on a legislative scale. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Uh, you know, I think it was two sessions ago around this time, we had already kind of, you know, at least sometime in December, had gotten the kind of Dan Patrick's top 10 or top 20 bills that he wanted to see passed. You know, um, I, I believe there had been a press conference about that. I think I might have even covered that press conference. Um, and then, uh, you know, last session, I don't think he did that same kind of thing, but we knew pretty clearly that, um, you know, property taxes and school finance were going to be the dominant issues. And, and as yeah. you said, like, we've heard very little from Dan Patrick. Uh, Phelan, obviously, a new speaker. Um, might, you know, still be kind of doing the work to, to get that out there. But, um, you know, right. aside from what we've heard from Abbott on policing, there hasn't been a lot that right. has, you know, these are the, aside from the things we have to do, these are the things that we kind of be want, want to be spending our energy. Yeah, there have been some things, you know, playing out kind of, I'm going to like just say the background, um, you know, long-term revenue sourcing for HB3, the, the big school finance bill that the legislature passed. I mean, you know, state leaders, Dennis Bonin, who, who's now retiring the, you know, retiring House Speaker, was acknowledging to reporters on the last day of the legislative session, hey, you know, this is going to be a big priority for us next session, right? Of course, 
before the pandemic and everything else. But, uh, you know, and then of course the, the state party, uh, the state GOP with, with its new chairman is, um, I assume going to be trying to take somewhat of an active role or maybe a vocal, vocal, uh, role in, in pushing party priorities, such as banning taxpayer funded lobbying, um, stuff like that, uh, you know, but I, I think until we have, you know, weigh in from the other, you know, from the big three, it, it's hard to say how much play, uh, issues like those are going to be getting. So one prominent Republican who has uh, started to make clear uh, what what he'd like to see happen this session is uh, Sheldon Adelson, not someone you usually hear about in Texas politics, but obviously a major donor um, to uh, President Donald Trump and other kind of national Republicans, kind of one of the most prominent GOP donors out there. He also pumped $4.5 million into the uh, 2020 elections, um, particularly Republican uh, efforts to hold the Texas House. Mitchell, you and um, our uh, colleague Patrick Svitek have been working on a story about kind of what he would like to see out of the legislative session. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you're, you're finding there? Yeah. Um, so Adelson's company, Las Vegas Sands, uh, is the world's largest gaming company and their top lobbyist. Uh, presented to or spoke at a conference yesterday um, hosted by the Texas uh, Taxpayers and Research Association and and really made a robust pitch um, for legalizing casino gambling in, in Texas, um, which kind of kind of emphasized the, the inroads some people have tried to make last session we saw a state rep, a Democrat from Beaumont, filed a, a bill or introduced a bill that, you know, would have asked voters to approve casino gambling in certain parts of Texas. Um, so, you know, and, and Las Vegas Sands has hired 10 lobbyists, you know, and, and including some very high power people um, that were senior advisors to governors in Texas and another person they hired was Karen Rove, the wife of the veteran Republican strategist Carl Rove. So yeah, Sheldon Adelson is is very interested and the timing is interesting because the state budget is going to be at a several billion dollar shortfall this session. And um, as our colleague Ross Ramsey has has written about, um, new forms of of revenue streams coming online could be of interest to to lawmakers and that could mean so-called sin taxes like like casinos yeah right it's uh this is a time where m the money is tight um and where lawmakers who are having to look at possible cuts to you know what education cassie you already mentioned the hb3 revenue stream that has to be found this time around uh you know universities obviously a lot of healthcare costs things from the um the pandemic that have, have risen up, you know, maybe it seems like maybe Adelson is is hoping, making a bet that that maybe they'll be a little bit more receptive to that idea. Mitchell, you mentioned that that team of lobbyists 
including Karen Rove. Um, other names on that list, Mike Toomey, who is the chief of staff to two governors, Gavin Massengill, who is chief of staff to the current House Speaker, Dennis Bonin, um, outgoing House Speaker, I guess you would say, um, Drew DeBerry, a former senior staffer to Greg Abbott. So, you know, it's not just that he's hiring lobbyists, he's hiring a lot of lobbyists and um, some pretty prominent ones. Gambling, I think, is always kind of an interesting subject for the legislature. Uh, this came up a little bit in the last session after the Supreme Court ruling that allowed um, states beyond Nevada to um, to allow sports gambling in their in their states. Uh, there was a little bit of talk of that. Some people would have liked to see it, but Greg Abbott kind of put the quash on that um, pretty quickly. The these issues are always kind of strange political bedfellows. We've seen a little bit of opposition from kind of the the hard right on this, uh, religious conservatives who are opposed. Um, but then you also see some Democrats who maybe think that gambling uh, disproportionately uh, hurts poor people, or you know can have kind of corrosive effects on society. Um, Cassie, I mean, do you have any 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 sense on whether this is? how this might be received by, you know, rank and file members of the house? Uh, you know, there's a lot of chatter going around, right. Uh, especially when we're talking about, but you know, how to, you know, help the budget outlook here. Um, but nothing really has, I think if anything, people are feeling skeptical, right. You can look at the, the lobbying team, uh, that's been brought on, but, uh, you know, it hasn't ever really been able to get anywhere before. So what's different now, um, I guess, would be my question or kind of the sentiment that um, I've picked up on just, you know, in, in very like, you know, ca casual conversations with capital folks. Um, you know, I don't know, really, where where that where where this fight's going or whether there you know would be enough of a uh, of, of a pushback to it um, for it to ever really make any sort of like notable uh movement at the legislature sure you know uh mitchell i want to ask one more thing before we go is that thing that you've been kind of spending your time taking a look at is the texas workforce commission uh, um our website uh i believe late last week had um a very complex uh detailed uh, how to guide for the people navigating, you know, the the challenges of the workforce commission, getting their unemployment, uh, uh, you know, during this time of the pandemic when there are so many people who are unemployed. And you also highlighted a uh, kind of a Facebook group where people have been turning because they haven't necessarily been able to find answers. Um, from the state, uh, I'm curious, just as you kind of went through that process, were you know, multiple were more almost a year into the pandemic now, um, what you kind of learned about kind of the, the hoops that people have to jump through in order to, to get this benefit? Yeah, I, anyone who's, who's never been on unemployment, truly, it, it's hard to understand the, the hoops that people have to jump through. Everyone has specific issues in their lives related to their jobs that, uh, you know, government agencies don't always necessarily account for. Um, and, you know, people have questions and oftentimes, and when you have questions and millions of other people have questions at the same time, it can be tricky to, to get answers. Uh, the Workforce Commission was not and continues not to be prepared for the flood of, 
of calls coming in and the volume of Texans seeking unemployment relief. And, you know, that they're trying. <laughs> they've, they've tried to, to add some staffers to answer the phones, but ultimately the economy is, has, has not improved a whole lot uh, in the way that state leaders were hoping um, from the spring. Um, it has, of course, bounced back a, a bit from, from the shutdowns in the spring, but we've seen the unemployment rate has, has gone up and down, and we're still seeing tens of thousands of Texans applying every week for unemployment aid. So the end is, is not in sight, and the agency needs a lot of help, and it is unclear how much help they're going to be able to get uh, through, this, through this legislative session. Sure. Okay, well, I think that uh, just about does it for us today. Thank you to our sponsors, Fairmont Austin, Antonio Garza, Bank of America, and the Texas Association of Freestanding Emergency Centers. Thank you to Cassie, Mitchell, and Emma. Thanks to our producer, Michael Ray. And we will talk to you all next week.